Good morning. How we doing? All right. Well, welcome to Bridgeway. My name is Brian Kiley. If we haven't met yet, I'm the singles pastor here. Especially want to welcome you if you're new. We're really, really glad that you are with us. We are right smack in the middle of an awesome series called Being Jesus, where we've taken all four of the Gospels that we find in Scripture and, and combined them into one account of Jesus' life. And we've just got an absolutely dynamite passage to look at this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6 and grab the sheet of paper you received when you walked in the door if you're in one of our sanctuaries this morning. I want to take a moment to welcome those of you watching online. Thank you for being with us today. We're glad that you are here as well. And as we begin, just a couple of, of introductory thoughts for you. Uh, I think it's fair to say, this is not going to be a terribly deep or, or profound statement, that all of us desire peace, right? I, I've had people come to me in my, my time as a pastor and just as a human being say, you know, Brian, my life is too boring, or, or Brian, my life is too uneventful, or, or Brian, my life is too stressful, or, or Brian, I carry too many financial burdens, or Brian, my relationships are a mess. I've never had anybody come to me and say, Brian, listen, you've you got to help me. I've got too much peace. My, things in my life are just working together in such perfect harmony. Is there any way out from this? Right? If only I could get a little bit of anxiety or, or worry in my life, then everything would be okay. Do you have anything to help me with that? Nobody says that, right? It's ridiculous. And yet, we, we all desire peace, and yet so few of us have it. My guess is if we were to go around the room today and all of us were to talk about how we're doing, very few of us would say, you know, I am at complete peace and I have no worries or anxieties whatsoever. Very few of us would say that. And why is that? We all desire peace, and yet we don't have it. I think the unfortunate reality is, the, the big reason for that, is you and I have a tendency to get hung up on looking to certain things to bring us peace that are utterly incapable of providing it. Utterly, utterly incapable, excuse me, grammar. And Jesus is going to show us today in the passage we have to look at, Two, way, two places that you and I have a tendency to look, two places that we can look for peace and security that utterly cannot provide it, and those two places are this. One, the approval of others, and two is material possessions or wealth. And here's what we're going to see, and it's the fill-in-the-blank on the sheet in front of you. A lack of peace is a sign of misplaced trust. A lack of peace is a sign of misplaced trust. And we are going to see that the reverse is true as well, that, that properly placed trust, in fact, does lead to the sort of peace that God wants to give us. So we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 6. And, and Matthew, uh, excuse me, Jesus begins in Matthew 6 with this word, beware. Right? And, and that's a loaded word, right? If, if, if you're talking to me and you say the word beware of something to me, then what you're implying is there's going to be something I'm going to encounter that I'm going to want to do. But I need to be careful to resist that urge and to not do it. So, for example, you might go to your doctor and your doctor might say, beware of drinking too much soda. And why would your doctor have to say that? Because despite the fact that soda is one of the absolute worst things we can put in our body, we're all at least tempted to do it. Why? Because soda is delicious. It's like the best tasting thing in the world. So we all want to drink it. So the doctor might have to say, beware of drinking too much soda. However, 
If you're an individual of sound mind, it is highly unlikely that your doctor has to tell you, beware of drinking out of the toilet. Right? That's just not a temptation. Not a temptation for me. I certainly hope not a temptation for you. We don't need to hear that. So, uh, so what is what are we to beware of? What is Jesus telling us to beware of? Here's what he has to say. He says, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them." Now, why does Jesus have to say this? Because practicing our righteousness in front of other people in order to be seen by them is awesome. People do amazing things for you when you practice your righteousness in front of them, right? They say wonderful things about you. Oh, you're so righteous. Oh, you're the best. Oh, you're just the best person ever. You're the most righteousest person I've ever seen. All the kids should look up to you, blah, 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 blah. People say all sorts of nice things. And it's like a candy bar for the soul, right? You feel great for a moment, but you wind up just kind of feeling empty. And people might say various things, but we get the idea that they say these things and our selfish, sinful nature is going to incline us to do things for the purpose of being seen. Because there is a temporary reward for that. But, but there's a result as well. There's a temporary reward from other people, but here's what Jesus says. For then, you will, re- you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven, and we'll say more about rewards in a moment. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This word hypocrite literally means actor. That's what, what any person listening to Jesus speak would have, would have made the connection between that word. An actor is just somebody who plays a part. And Jesus is saying, when you give, when you practice righteousness, don't be an actor. Don't just fake it. Don't just do things for the applause of other people. Because see, the actor, the insincere person, has no interest in glorifying God. They have no interest in even helping people. They're only in it for themselves and for their own praise. So they're going to make a big deal about it. Hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at how much I'm giving. Look at how much I'm serving. That's what the actor is going to do. And perhaps if we were to translate this into modern terms, we we might say, uh, when you give to the needy or when you serve in ministry, post not about it on Facebook and Instagram. As the hypocrites do to be praised by others, truly I tell you they've seen received their reward. And and here's what he means by received their reward. If if you and I do things for the praise of other people, if if what we're after is is the praise of, of people, Here's what might happen. We very well may get it. People may very well say the nice things about us that we so desire. But that is all we're going to get. God will pay no attention to our deeds because our motives indicate we have no interest in him being involved, right? We're in it for ourselves. There'll be no heart transformation. There'll be nothing more that comes from our good works other than a few compliments here and there. And listen, there's nothing wrong with being complimented for a job well done. There's nothing wrong with having people say nice things about you and and, and graciously accepting those compliments for for things that you and I do well. But but when the only thing your labor produces is people who say nice things about you, first of all, that is profoundly empty. And, And second of all, the praise of other people is an unresolvable appetite. The praise of one person will leave you desiring the praise of two. 
and so on and so forth. It is an un it is, an, it is an appetite that we absolutely cannot fully fulfill. Now, these verses raise two related issues. First of all, th- does that mean that any good deed we do has to be done in complete secrecy? Like, do we need to, anytime we go out to serve, do we need to be like a celebrity going to the grocery store and wear a disguise so no one will recognize us, right? Or I decided yesterday afternoon before coming in, I decided to, to, to post on my Facebook page that I was going to be preaching this weekend in our main services so any friends and family from around the country could tune in if they wanted to. Hi, by the way. Was it wrong of me to do that? Maybe. We'll see. But second, 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 second question is this. What are we to make of verses like Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, which on the surface appear to be directly contradicting what we're told here? Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So to answer the first question, no, it doesn't mean that any and all of our good deeds need to be done in secret. There are instances throughout Scripture, there's one particularly in Acts chapter 4, where giving is done publicly, where the congregation comes together and people publicly bring their gifts to the Lord. But the real issue, and this will help us with the was I wrong in posting on Facebook question, which I know you're all dying for the answer there. The second question is, is it's an issue not of doing good secretly versus publicly, it's an issue of motive. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, let your light shine so people may give glory to God, for the purpose that people may give glory to God. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, don't be timid, live a life of radical, irrational love for others so that people can see your love through me. Whereas here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying, be careful, don't make your good deeds about you. The issue is motive. And it's a question we have to ask ourselves all the time. Am I seeking God's glory or my own? In fact, the the, the Greek word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, for give glory, as in give glory to God, is the exact same Greek word used in Matthew chapter 6 for praise, as in to be praised by men. So Jesus is making a very clear point here. He's saying somebody is going to receive glory from your actions. Is it going to be you or is it going to be other people? That's the issue. When I post on my Facebook page that I'm preaching today, I don't really care what anybody thinks of me. I really don't. But I believe that God has something powerful to say through his word, so that's why I shared it. But that's a process I had to go through my own, in my own heart. Why am I doing this? Again, the issue is motive. Who, who is going to receive glory for my actions? Questions we have to ask ourselves all the time. When, when I post on social media... Whose glory am I seeking, mine or God's? When I tell a story about serving others or about some ministry event, whose glory am I seeking, mine or, or God's? Am I ultimately, in my own life, in the way that I live, and the choices that I make, am I seeking my own praise and renown, or am I seeking the praise and renown of God? And that's the issue. That's the issue. And what Jesus says next helps us take this further and helps us see that the issue is not external behavior. The issue is is heart condition. Verse 3, here's what he says. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. What the heck does that mean? Glad you asked. Here's what it means. It's a hyperbole or an, or an exaggeration meant to make a point. He's saying, so, so, so imagine that, this is kind of a weird illustration, but go with it. So imagine your right hand and your left hand had, had two distinct personalities. All right, we'll call them Bert and Ernie, I don't know. And, and if your left hand 
were to see your right hand giving to the needy or serving others or considering another person before yourself, Jesus is saying, live in such a way that if that were to happen, your left hand wouldn't be going, wow, bravo, right hand, way to go. I would clap for you if I could. That doesn't really work. That's so amazing. He's saying, no, no, no. Live in such a way that, that your left hand would say, well, hey, that's cool, but that's just what we always do. That's no big deal. That's just another day. This is the way that we live. See, see so much of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, but throughout the Gospels, it's not change your behavior. It's not that at all. If anything, Jesus is saying, forget your external behavior. I'm not here to make actors. I'm here to give you a new heart. Life with God isn't about external behavior. It's about having our heart transformed by the Spirit of God so that we just naturally do good to others. We naturally act as, as vessels of God's love who take the love that he has shown us and show it to other people. I mean, when I woke up this morning, I ate breakfast, got dressed, brushed my teeth, didn't really pat myself on the back for it because that's just what I do, right? I mean, I stopped congratulating myself for brushing my teeth on my own when I was like three. It's just not a big deal. That's just what I do. There's no, I didn't have to think anything great about myself because of it. And what Jesus is saying is that when you're all in with me, he says, I will develop in you the kind of character so that good deeds are simply the, the natural extension of who you are. You will think nothing of them because they are completely natural to you because I will have so transformed you with my love that you'll be unconcerned with the approval of others. You'll be unconcerned with building your own ego. You'll just want to do good, to, to show the love that I have for you to other people. I, I, Sorry to belabor this point, but this is so important. God doesn't care about our behavior. God doesn't want us to just behave ourselves. Because listen, you and I can fake our behavior, can't we? And some of us are really, really good at it. We can fake it, I mean, for a while anyways. Jesus wants to do something so much deeper than that. He wants to give us a new heart with new desires to become the sort of people who just do good naturally. And here's the promise. Here's the promise for our secret Good deeds. End of verse 4. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So there's a promise of reward for good deeds done in secret. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only person who's ever thought this way. But for a long time, this notion of receiving rewards from God has kind of... I've had a hard time with it. I don't, I don't really get it. It's it sort of bothered me a little bit for a couple of reasons. One, on the one hand, the scriptures are clear that we are saved by grace, not by works. There is nothing you or I could do that could possibly improve our standing before God. When it comes to our salvation, we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone. And this whole concept of rewards seems to kind of fly in the face of that. And then second... Let's just be honest. Is there really that much of a difference between me doing a good deed to get a pat on the back from you and me doing a good deed to get a pat on the back from God? I would suggest to you not really because it's still sort of all about me, isn't it? I mean, some might say, oh, you Christians, you're just, you know, you're no good. You're just doing good so that, so, you know, for some reward or some reward of heaven. You should just do good for the sake of doing good. And I would completely agree with that sentiment. However... Throughout the New Testament, there's talk of heavenly rewards and not losing our rewards and rewards for good done in secret. So, so, so what should we make of this? 
Well, it's critical for us to see that there are two different kinds of rewards. So if you do well at your job, and and you get a promotion, or you get a bonus, or you get publicly recognized, or you get a pat on the back from your boss, that's one kind of reward, right? Or similarly, it's just season of life that I'm in right now. If you give your child a treat, as long as they don't freak out in the restaurant... Right? That's the same kind of reward. Or if, you get, if you're in school and you get recognized publicly for your good grades or citizenship or whatever the case may be, that's one kind of reward. The reward is kind of disconnected from the activity. There's no inherent connection between you doing your job well and you receiving more money. Those are two very different kinds of things. But what's the reward for me if I work on my marriage? I'll give you a hint. It's not a trophy. <laughs> Husband of the year. Woo. You know, it's not a certificate. It, it's a better marriage. Right? It's a better, stronger marriage where, where I'm more able to enjoy my wife and serve my wife and we're able to be healthier together. Right? Or if you're an athlete, what is the reward of time spent in the pool or on the driving range or in the gym? The reward is when, when it comes time to play for real, you're ready. And you're going to play better. So see, that sort of reward is is connected to to what you're doing. It's the natural outflow, the natural outcome of what you're doing. So what is the reward for our good deeds done in secret in Jesus' name? There are a couple of them. One, we get the joy of intimacy with God. That is, we walk in fellowship with God, being a part of the work that he is doing. We get the joy of being close with him, of of him being near us, of us experiencing life as he desires for us to experience. And then beyond that, even better than that, well, I don't don't know, just as good as that, is we get to see the result of our actions. We get to see hungry people fed. We get to see lost people find faith. We get to see broken lives restored. We get to see the name of Jesus magnified in the hearts and minds of people. We get to enjoy God, and we get to see his glory spreading in all the earth. And I would submit to you this morning, if our hearts have been transformed by Jesus, what reward could possibly be better than that? I mean, the heart has to be transformed first, but if our hearts are transformed, what could we be better than that? I mean, we need to understand, we're saved entirely by God's grace. And that God is not in heaven watching our good deeds saying, wow, he gave how much? I need to make him a bigger trophy. Right? Like, no, it doesn't work that way at all. The reward of our financial giving or the reward of going on a missions trip or loving our neighbor is not some sort of heavenly trophy. The only heavenly trophy that matters, Jesus won for us and has nothing to do with us. Rather, the reward of our good works is the result of our good works. And if our hearts have been transformed, what could be better than that? And you can keep your trophy and your applause. I don't care. To see hungry people fed, lost people found, got God's name glorified, that's better than all of that stuff. So Jesus helps us see that the first place we can wrongly look for peace and security is in the approval of others, and we can just get a lot of things twisted if that's what is most important to us. And to help us see the, the, second, the second place we can, we can improperly look, the second place that will leave us anxious and worried, let's skip down to Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 19. We're going to cover 5 through 18 next week. Uh, here's what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. You and I are made to treasure. Having something that we treasure is part of being human. And I would say part of our humanity is compromised if there isn't something that we treasure. 
But what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, be very careful about your treasuring. Be very careful about what you are making ultimate in your life. And and listen, in, in saying do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, he's not banning having property or any of that. But what he's saying is don't find your ultimate security in your possessions. He's not anti-life insurance. He's not anti-savings account. He's not anti-reasonable uh, provision for the future. But he's saying don't put your ultimate security in possessions because they are fragile and they are temporary. And more than that, no matter how many of them you accumulate, they will never fully satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, and they will never bring you ultimate security. I love this quote from John D. Rockefeller. At one time, he was the richest man in the world. He was the first billionaire in the United States. He founded Standard Oil. This guy could practically print his own money. And one day, a reporter came up to him and asked him, he said, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And you want to know what he said? Just a little bit more. Richest guy in the world. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Listen, Jesus isn't against property. But what he's telling us here is the notion of salvation by possessions or salvation by wealth is a myth. I mean, listen, come on. Rockefeller's not alone here. We all think we'd be better off if we had a little bit more, right? But but here's how deep down in our hearts we think about it. We know that's not true. Why? Because you thought that when you had less than you do now. When you had less than you do now, you thought if only I could have a little bit more, then I would be fine. And if you 10 years ago could see you now and how you're still complaining about how things are tight, you 10 years ago would be pretty ticked, right? I mean, come on. We thought the same thing when we had less than we do now and we still think we need just a little bit more. And then more. I mean, what happens to our stuff? Jesus kind of references it in the passage. I mean, it gets old. No one's excited about an iPhone 3 anymore. There's not, right? Or it gets stolen, I had my computer stolen when I was in college. I was disappointed, it was a bummer, but I wasn't devastated. Computer's not my treasure, it's a thing. Jesus is saying, don't so heavily, so fully, invest your heart in temporary possessions such that when, not if, when they are taken from you, you are devastated. If we make earthly treasure ultimate, we're doomed to disappointment. And here's the alternative. He continues. But lay up for yourselves, verse 20, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. To lay up treasures in heaven is to invest ourselves in that which lasts for eternity. It means to live our lives in such a way that we are most fully able to enjoy God. And again, this isn't about uh, storing up for ourselves some sort of heavenly reward or heavenly trophy or anything like that. It means we're investing ourselves most deeply in things that moths and rust and thieves cannot touch. This means investing ourselves in our relationship with God so that we can enjoy Him fully. It means investing ourselves in serving other people and investing ourselves in their well-beings. It means living with an open hand with our possessions so that we might use them to bless others instead of hoarding them. It means investing financially in the work of God both locally and globally. In short, it means using our temporary resources and investing them in that which is eternal. And I think it's fascinating that, come on, here we are living in the richest, 
most technologically advanced society in the history of humankind. And yet, I would suggest to you, we are faced with what I'll call a crisis of meaning. So many of us lack meaning in our lives. So many of us are bored. <laughs> Unbelievably, we have all the resources in the world and we're bored. So many of us are unfulfilled. So many of us are anxious and worried and insecure. People who seemingly should be happy aren't. What's the deal with that? I'll tell you what the deal is. The deal is we are looking for peace and security in the wrong places, and a lack of peace is a sign of misplaced trust. There's an absolutely powerful quote from the great Canadian philosopher Jim Carrey that, <laughs> that, that, I, that I try to remind myself of when I, when I feel the pull uh, of, of treasure of this world, when, when, I, when I feel tempted to invest in the things of this world rather than eternal things. And listen to what he has to say. This famous movie star who's had all the success in the world. Listen to this. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. That is real life right there, isn't it? I mean, come on. If salvation, if, if ultimate peace and security could be found through stuff, it could be found through success, of all people, Jim Carrey would be, would be standing before us saying, come, I have found the secret to happiness and fulfillment. Come and follow me. I'll teach you to make all the funny facial expressions I do and to tell jokes like I do. And you, too, can have, have wealth and security and prosperity and have everything you ever dreamed of. But he says, no, that's not it. It's not it. Peace and security through applause, peace and security through possessions, they're myths. They're absolutely myths. And these might seem like hard words from Jesus, but really there is tremendous grace in these words because Jesus is trying to keep us, don't miss this, Jesus is trying to keep us from going down a path that our culture tells us will lead to our happiness when in reality that path has no destination but only has sign after sign after sign that says just a little bit further. These words, there is tremendous grace and gospel freedom in these words because come on, that's a definition of hell, isn't it? Unfulfilled appetite, unfulfilled longing, the continued desire for just a little bit more. And, and come on, I mean, if, if you're not a Christian, this is good advice. Your life will be better if you follow this advice. If you are a Christian, I mean, these are words of life. I mean, these are powerful. They're, again, grace-filled words, just filled with gospel freedom. And, and Jesus goes on. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we all have to answer the question. Who, who owns my heart? Who, who owns our heart? And our answer to that question determines if we're captives or if we're free. And listen, stuff is great. You know, cars and houses and electronic doodads and, you know, whatever else you're into. Like, that's all well and good and fine. I mean, Jesus isn't against those things. But I hope they don't own your heart. Right? And I hope that you value the people in your life more than your stuff, but at the same time, I hope that a person doesn't own your heart. I'm sorry, I know that's not very romantic. But let me, here, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. I mean, I, I hope that you're not looking to another person for your ultimate peace and security. If we're treasuring anything other than Christ, we are captives to those things. 
But if we're treasuring Christ, we are free. And as we continue in this passage, we're going to see the implications of some of these verses. So our our next bit is going to be a combination account of of Matthew and Luke. So it'll be up on the screens uh, on either side of me. Here's what he says. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a stand that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, so much of what we do is dependent upon our ability to see. If my vision is off and is uncorrected, it will interfere with my ability to accomplish certain tasks of life. That's that's kind of the idea here. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. <clears throat> Here's what's going on here. In the scriptures, the eye is used as a metaphor much like the heart is, or much like we might use the heart as a metaphor today. So for example, in Psalm 119, verse 6, when David says, speaks of fixing my eyes on your commandments, he doesn't mean he's looking at them, right? He mean, it means he's learning them and internalizing them. So Jesus here shifts from the metaphor of the heart in verse 21 to the metaphor of the eye in verse 23. And here's, here's what he's saying. If our eyes are working properly, we will see heavenly treasure and we will see earthly treasure and we will value them properly. Thus, we will value heavenly treasure more. We will find it to be of more worth. Thus, thus, we will gladly and enthusiastically sacrifice what is temporal, sacrifice what cannot come with us, sacrifice what is eventually going away for the sake of that which is eternal. We We will delight ourselves in that which delights God. And we will delight ourselves in intimacy with him, knowing he is our greatest treasure. And we will live passionately for him, again, for the same reason, because he is our treasure. But if our eye is bad, our vision will be distorted. You, you will not see things as they actually are. I have a good friend who's colorblind. He understands this perfectly. Hey, nice green shirt. Well, actually, it's orange, but thank you. That's the idea. We don't see things as they actually are. Are. So Jesus says, if your metaphorical vision is distorted, your real life will be distorted. Your priorities will be distorted. You will value things improperly. You will look upon heavenly treasure and not see it as beautiful as earthly treasure is, and thus you will sacrifice what is eternal for what is temporal, and that is a tragedy. Because I don't care how much temporal stuff you have, it cannot satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. There's evidence of that all over the place. And if you've struggled with addiction, and so many of us, so many of us have, it's reality of life. If you've struggled with addiction, you get this concept. Because how does addiction work? Addiction distorts our priorities such that we are most treasuring the object of our addiction. So we sacrifice other things to be able to fulfill our addiction. It's the same idea Jesus is getting at. And what he says next is fascinating. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Wait, you can't serve God and money? Shouldn't it be like, you can't serve God and the devil? Like, that would make sense, right? I mean, what's the deal with you can't serve God and money? 
Well, here's what Jesus is doing here. He's already said we have the choice between two treasures, earthly and heavenly. And we have the choice between how we're going to see the world, with a good eye or a bad eye. And now we have a third choice, and that is, are we going to, are we going to allow God to be our master, or are we going to allow money to be our master? And here's what happens. If we allow money to be our master, if our vision is bad and we allow money to become our master, here's what can often happen. Is our faulty vision, our faulty vision, which, which finds the things of the earth more valuable than the things of God, will cause us to spend and borrow ourselves into a scenario where we might love Jesus, but our master's name is Visa. And we get ourselves into a position where we open the pages of Scripture and we're, and we're like, man, God, I see what you want me to do and I see how you want me to be generous and how you want me to live my life and I want to be obedient and there's so much joy found in you and I don't, I don't need the things of the world. I want to follow you. But then we have to stop and say, um, hey, Visa, is that okay? And Visa's like, and we're like, Visa, you're such a jerk. But come on, that's not Visa's fault. That's not Visa's fault. See, when we treasure the wrong things, our vision gets clouded. And we value earthly things. And when we value earthly things, money will eventually become our master. And when we look to it for security, eventually we'll get to a place where it interferes in, with our ability to engage with God. This is so important. We cannot serve God because we've made money our master. And notice, Jesus does not say employer. You can have two employers. Many of us do. But you cannot have two masters. Your master is over you 24-7. Jesus says you can serve either God or money with single-eyed, single-minded devotion, but you cannot have it both ways. Make no mistake about it. And what is the result if we let money be our master? It's the same result that we get any time we look to anything other than God. It's a lack of peace. Because a lack of peace is a sign of misplaced trust. And we simply cannot look to the approval of other people or to money and material possessions to, to give us peace, because they will always only lead to anxiety. So then Jesus gets to why some of the things we've talked about so far are so important, why we simply must get them right. Verse 25. Therefore, in light of all of this, in light of everything I've told you, in light of everything about heavenly treasure and having single-minded devotion to me, once you get these things right, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious. Or as other translations put it, do not worry. We need to be clear here that there, there are medical conditions related to anxiety and the cause of this anxiety. Jesus isn't speaking to that here. He, he's speaking to worry and hand-wringing and that sort of thing. But he, come on, Jesus, do not worry. I, that's like saying do not breathe. Come on, worry is as American as apple pie. Everybody worries. How on earth are we not supposed to worry? And I'll just, I, I hate to brag, but I'm really good at worrying. I mean, I'm great at it. I'm an expert at worrying. In fact, I could teach a class on how to, how to paralyze yourself with worry and anxiety in three easy steps. We'll, we'll start the class next week. Uh, just kidding. But, but, I, but if you're anything like me, and I'm guessing I'm not the only one in this room who struggles with worry. If you're anything like me, these words from Jesus are such a gift because they show us the only way to escape worry. We have to make our decision regarding the things he has talked about so far, regarding what we are going to value, regarding what we are going to be our master. We have to get those things right before we can have any hope 
of getting our worry under control, before God can even begin to address our worry issues. Because see, what Jesus wants to do is reorient our hearts so that we are most focused on that which is eternal and secure rather than what is temporary and insecure and fleeting. He keeps going. So therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more val- of more value than they? We need to be clear. Jesus is not saying in this passage, don't work. Throughout the scriptures, work is extolled as important and and virtuous. We should by no means, this is by no means suggesting, well, God's got everything under control, so I don't need to work past the Doritos. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, I'm not really a, you know, bird guy per se, but if you observe birds, they are incredibly hardworking, right? God provides for the birds, but they have to go out and get that provision. You know what I'm saying? And in the same way, Jesus is not saying we should not make preparation for the future. I mean, there is absolutely nothing wrong with with having a savings account or making financial plans for the future. Or or if you have a diagnosis, if you're sick or injured, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with making a treatment plan for the future. Indeed, you absolutely should do those things. I mean, birds do all sorts of things to prepare for the future. They they build nests and then they migrate thousands of miles. But what they don't do is worry. And what they don't do is hoard their possessions today in fear of God's blessing not being there tomorrow. I mean, I've never seen a bird that was stressed out. I don't know about you. And if God, who is so much more committed to us than to the birds, provides for the birds in that way, will he not also provide for us? And then verse 27, this is just some straight talk from Jesus here. And which of you, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. Jesus is really getting to the heart of why worry is a bad idea here. It flat out doesn't work. Worry is a complete waste of time. It accomplishes nothing. Going through life shackled with worry, it makes about as much sense as showing up to run the 100-meter dash wearing cement boots. It makes no sense, and it's only going to hold you back. And I mean, come on. I've never met a person... I've never had a person who's come up to me and said, Brian, you know what, man? That season of soul-crushing worry that I went through, it was so valuable. Come on, nobody says that. Or, you know, as I look back on my life, I'm just grateful for all that time I spent worrying. It was so productive. Or no one says, man, I, man, I love hanging out with so-and-so. They're just worried and freaked out all the time. We have so much fun together. Come on, nobody says that. And listen, when we become worried about tomorrow, we're becoming worried about a fantasy world, aren't we? We are, we are burdening ourselves with thoughts about a world that does not yet exist and indeed may never exist. I mean, your worry and my worry is a liar. It's got us freaked out over things that aren't even real. And some of us might say, well, listen, okay, Jesus, fine. This might have worked in first century Palestine. I'll bet you had a lot less to worry about than we do today in our 21st century complex, technologically, blah, 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 go, go, go society. So, so you don't understand what it's like to be fearful about the future. Really? Jesus spoke these words in the shadow of the cross. 
Jesus' future was not a mystery to him. He knew what was coming. And yet he's saying, don't be anxious. And you might say, well, I mean, he knew that he was going to accomplish great things through it and that he was going to rise from the dead, so he probably wasn't that worried about it. Really? If you were going to be crucified, would it really be of that much comfort to you knowing you were going to rise from the dead? Would you not still be afraid? Would you not still be worried? Come on, we all would. So, so if there was ever anyone who had good reason to be worried about the future, it's Jesus. And yet he says, don't, don't worry. And I'm telling you, t- take it from me. An expert in the art and science of worry. That worry is a thoroughly useless emotion, and this is a message I have to preach to myself constantly. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Think about it. Have you ever seen a multicolored flower in nature and thought, those colors just don't go together? Man, that, that, that is embarrassing. Right? No, you never have. Why? Because there is no flower like that. Because God is the world's greatest fashion designer. Not even Solomon, who was one stylish dude, could compare. Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little if, if God has so much more concern for, for flowers, which are literally here today and gone tomorrow, d- does he not have much more concern for you and for me? And then Jesus makes it sting a little bit. Oh, you of little faith. Ouch. But, but that's ultimately the problem most of the time when we worry, isn't it? Come on, I, I know your situation's special and all, and all that other stuff, but come on, be, let's be honest. That's the situation when we worry. But what? We think God has forgotten us. Or we think God doesn't care. Or we think God is unconcerned with our situation. And I confess, it is very easy to fall into that kind of thinking. But what does Jesus say? Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. There it is again. He repeated it. He must be serious about this. Saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Gentiles in that culture... They were people that believed in other gods. They did not believe in God. They believed in the wrong gods. And they believed in gods that did not care about them. So the idea of trusting in God was a very foreign idea for a Gentile. Thus, Gentiles would freak out and they would seek. That Greek word doesn't simply mean look for. It means focus on intensely. What do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? There's no one who's going to help us or look out for us. Jesus says, don't be like them. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and, and this is so huge. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It's true for me, it's true for you. Your heavenly Father knows. Your heavenly Father knows. He's heavenly, meaning he's sovereign over all creation, and there's nothing that can interfere with him carrying out his will. And he's a father, meaning he looks upon you as his beloved child with nothing but fatherly love and affection. Your heavenly father knows. Your heavenly father knows what is good for you, and he has all the wisdom necessary to meet your needs. Your heavenly father knows you need to work. Your heavenly father knows you want to get married. Your heavenly father knows your financial situation. Your heavenly father knows about your kids and how you're worried about them and stressed out and all the hopes and dreams you have for them and all the things that, you know, just going on in your house. I'm a parent, I get that. Your heavenly father knows that there is not a care or concern 
in your heart or mind that is a mystery to our Heavenly Father. He, he knows and he's good. And a lack of peace is a sign of misplaced trust. So Jesus is saying here, trust God. Get your trust in the right place. The solution to your lack of peace is not seeking approval or material wealth. It's trusting me. Two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, instead of worrying, present your request to God. And all of your problems will magically go away. No, that's not what it says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Your heavenly Father sees and he knows and he's good. And he says that there is an alternative to worry. Verse 33. Rather than worry... Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Here's the promise. If we seek first his kingdom, he will meet our needs. If we seek first to submit every area of our life to his loving care, he will meet our needs. If we seek first to participate in the rule and reign of God, and if we seek first to grow in the righteousness which he has placed in us, he will meet our needs. If we seek first his kingdom, he will provide everything you and I need to glorify him in this life until the time comes when God sees fit by his sovereign will for us to glorify him in our death. Life might be hard. This world is tremendously broken. You and I might suffer tremendously. Life might not make sense for a moment or for an entire season, but the promise of our Heavenly Father who loves us is that nothing will separate us from His love, and if we are seeking first His kingdom, He will give us what we need to sustain us until the end. That's the promise. That's God's alternative to worry and anxiety. The the promise that you and I have a Heavenly Father who we can trust with tomorrow, and who we can serve with joy today. And if we say, you know, no thanks, I'm just going to go out and build my own kingdom, we very well may succeed for a little while. But in time, we will come to discover what so many before us have come to discover, and that is when we build our own kingdom, it is a castle of sand. And it might be a very impressive castle of sand, but the reality is, when we build that castle, worry is our constant companion, and peace is, in short, supply. Verse 34. (laughs) Here it is again. Therefore, do not be anxious. Three times. Can you believe that? He must really be serious about this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The great German theologian and one of my personal heroes, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says this. He says, it is our securing things for tomorrow which makes us so insecure today. That's true, isn't it? He goes on, only those who put tomorrow completely into God's hand and receive fully today what they need for their lives are really secure. By the way, he was operating an illegal seminary when Hitler was in power in Germany, so this guy knew a little bit about having things to fear. I mean, the future belongs in God's hands, not ours, and we attempt to take it. That is an invitation to anxiety. And listen, I don't care how sure things seem. The future will only and always be a mystery. You and I do not know what is waiting for us on the other side of those doors. In fact, it is those of us who fret and worry and get all hung up about what's in the future that have our present hijacked. 
so that we're not able to enjoy God today. We're not able to serve God today because we're so hung up about a world that may or may not ever exist. And God is saying, come on, come on, come on. It's my job to worry about the future. Don't try to do it yourself. You're only going to hurt yourself. Don't worry about, don't even worry about my will for you for the future. I've told you my will for you today. It's to seek my kingdom and my righteousness. You have nothing to gain from worry and everything to gain from trusting me. And, and please hear me when I say this, that these words sound like hard words from Jesus, but they're words of freedom. Jesus isn't trying to lay a burden on us saying, hey, try really hard not to worry, and when you worry, you better feel guilty about it. Because none of us can avoid worry on our own. He's not saying that at all. Instead, he's showing us that while God doesn't offer us freedom from hardship or pain, and God doesn't necessarily promise that life will work out as we planned, God does offer us real freedom from worry. He says real peace is possible, and it's found in him. A lack of peace is a sign of misplaced trust, and he wants to save us from that. So he's saying, trust me today. Receive my grace for the challenges of today. Seek my kingdom today, and trust me with the future, knowing that there will be grace for you in the future to deal with those future challenges, and my peace will be with you every step of the way. See, the cure for our worry, it has nothing to do with changing our circumstances. I promise you, if you are worried about something today, once that goes away, you will find something else to be worried about. The solution to our worry is changing where we place our trust so that God can change our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us. God, what an amazing promise it is for you to offer us freedom from worry, God, in a a world where so many of us are stressed out, so many of us are worried, so many of us are looking for, for answers in all of the wrong places. God, I pray for myself and for my friends here this morning that that you might save us from a life of desiring the praise of others and seeking our security in that and that you might save us from the myth of salvation by material possessions and material wealth. But God, instead, help us to find our ultimate value and security in the reality that you're a good God that loves his children, that there's no trophy we could ever gain on earth that is as great as the trophy you have gained for us by sending your son to die in our place for our sin. So God, I pray that we would be people that seek first your kingdom today, that that seek first your righteousness today, that live lives of radical generosity and love today so that you might receive glory. So God, help us to trust you with the future so that that we might be secure today and live passionately for you today. We love you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.